0: Hello and welcome to the Catholic Duluth Show. The Catholic Duluth Show is a parish community podcast serving the parishes of St. Lawrence and Holy Family in Duluth, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Dan Rhoda, and uh, today we have uh, Father Richard Kuntz um, on the podcast. So, Father Rich uh, joins me and Father Anthony, and uh, yeah, we just have a a good conversation. We talk about his upbringing, how he, uh, you know, how he became a priest, just going through his uh, his journey of discernment and in and out of the seminary a couple of times, and then uh, yeah, just talk about his life as a parish priest, the different you know different things that he's done. You know, we we talk about this in the episode, but uh, growing up, he was the his first assignment as a priest was the associate uh, when my family just moved to Brainerd when I was you know six or seven, and uh, he's he's the 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 same now than he was then and i think that's just a testament to his uh his uh yeah just who he is and and his uh his confidence in uh just in in himself and in the lord so so yeah here is our conversation with father rich yeah we hope you enjoy and we'll talk to you again next time I guess, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself for the, for the
1: listeners who haven't met you before? Sure. Well, uh, my name is Father Richard Kunst. I'm a priest of the Diocese of Duluth and uh, come from a family of seven kids. I'm number six out of seven. I grew up in a Jewish Catholic household. My mom is Jewish and my dad is Catholic. And that was not abnormal to me. I thought every kid's mom was Jewish when I was growing up, so it was nothing unusual. People asked what it was like, but to me it was just normal. And uh, I got ordained a uh, priest in 1998. Before that, I did a little stint in politics, uh, just for a couple of years, at least formally, and then came back into the seminary and got ordained.
0: Okay. So, were you raised Catholic during th- yep. that time, yep. or we were, were you raised
1: Catholic? But we had okay. the best of both worlds, and so my mom's side, the whole side of the family, is Jewish, and so did the Jewish things and did the Catholic things, but we were understood that we were Catholic.
0: Okay. So. Okay. Yeah, and, um, well, I mean, as you said, like that was just kind of normal to you. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, it's kind of hard when you don't know anything different. Right, right. Um, but I could definitely see, especially as you kind of grow in your faith, mm-hmm. like that actually being a really cool asset.
1: I am as proud of my Jewish heritage as I am my Catholic heritage. You know, Catholicism drips with Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so every aspect of our faith has some Jewish connection to it, especially the liturgy. So I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I mean, jesus was a jew his mom was a jew all the apostles were jews you know and so it's like we we come from that and so to have a a mom and a whole family side of the family jewish uh you're right exactly as i got older i I appreciated it more and more and even tons now i'm i'm very proud of my jewish heritage yeah
0: um well and there's a is it brent Petrie? Oh, yeah. yeah. Do, do, yeah, yeah. Dr. Dr. Petrie? Yep,
1: yep, he's done some books in regards to the Jewish connection to Catholicism, especially in the Eucharist. He wrote a very good book on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's something to me that I think the more and more I learn about the Jewish roots of just the faith in general, it mm-hmm. just becomes like, like, well, it does become more real, and it, it, it makes sense, like mm-hmm. logically, a lot right. of, the, a lot of the, the, the things, but it also just like, it's like, oh, th- this was all planned.
1: Right, and and yeah, you know, Pope Pius XI, as you know, the um uh, you know the anti-Semitism was growing more and more in Western Europe leading up to the Second World War. He wrote an encyclical in which he stated emphatically that we are all uh, spiritual Semites, as as Catholics in particular, but as Christians in general, spiritually we're all Jewish. We're all spiritual Semites to try and push off this this anti-Semitism that was growing in Western Europe at the time. So that really speaks to me what Pius XI wrote. So. Yeah.
2: Um, that's that's what's engaged me a lot more in recent years too. Looking at the Jewish roots, be, especially because of Doctor Petrie's work, G- Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, amazing work. I mean, that really brought new depth, new appreciation, new love uh, of the Eucharist for me. Even as a priest, I was like, man, this is this is really wonderful, and it was all planned. I mean, it yeah. all it fits yeah. so exactly. well. Even and especially the liturgy, you pointed that out, Father Rich. That's exactly right. Even down to the incense, you know. I mean, that's all a carry through, a continuation of these things with the presence of God.
1: When we say at Mass, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, through your goodness, we have this bread to offer. That's actually um, uh, the uh, Barakah, which is the Jewish table prayer. And so that's the, that's the oldest part of the Catholic Mass is that Barakah that we say at the altar. It's, it's basically the Jewish table prayer was not blessing the food, but it was blessing God for the food. And so when you, when, you hear, when you hear that said by the priest, know that that's the oldest part of the liturgy. And it's basically what Jesus would have said as he was saying grace before meals. Pretty yeah. cool.
0: That is cool. And yeah, and just um, learning stuff like that is I think part of, it's little things for me that just make the, the faith, uh, just like
1: you realize how, how much depth there is. Exactly. And there is, there's incredible depth. I mean, it's all planned as we've already said.
0: Mm-hmm. You were raised in Duluth, is that correct? Duluth, yeah, born and okay. raised in Duluth. Uh, did you, like, like growing up, would you, would you say that your, like, faith was strong, or was there at some point in your life that it really kind of clicked for you?
1: I'd say I was pretty young when my faith was strong, even though my my parents had an agreement, one being Catholic, one being Jewish, that religion wouldn't play an external aspect of the life of the family, so no religious symbols in the home. We went to Mass, on on Sundays, my dad was very good about that, but he had to bring seven kids. And uh, I would say that my biggest influence as a child was my paternal grandmother, my dad's mom. She was a true saint uh, by every stretch of the um, term, except for she has not been canonized. And so uh, she was a huge influence on me. And I remember her telling me as I got a little bit older, she died when I was 18, but I don't remember this, but she said to me that when she was talking about God to me, I said to her, I must have been three or four years old. I said, I said, Grandma, I said, every time we talk about God, it makes me tinkle inside. (laughs) And so that's always been a really, uh, she said, she told me that when I was maybe 16 or 17 years old, that I had had that conversation with her. And, and so that, um, uh, that kind of struck me that my call was pretty early on, and I had a sense of it pretty early on. There were times throughout life where I wanted to do other things other than the priesthood. But my desire for the priesthood was right at early childhood, despite the fact that I came from a jewish slash catholic household my my paternal grandmother was a a massive impact on me
0: okay that's awesome so then you uh did you go straight to
1: like college seminary did you go to i actually went to a high school seminary for a couple of years so i went to crozier seminary in onamia minnesota uh for ninth and tenth grade and i realized pretty quickly that that was not a good place to be at that age away from your family because it was a a boarding seminary. I as I, I moved away from home at fourteen, my Jewish mother had not liked that idea. You know, the mm-hmm. idea she agreed to bring up the kids Catholic. She did not bring agree to bring up one as a priest, and so uh, to enter in the seminary at a very early age was was uh, as I look back on it was a very bad idea in in every way. Uh, and so I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't mature enough. I don't believe that high school seminary should exist. You know, I think that I think that the the proper place for young people growing up is in the home, not in a boarding school that calls itself a seminary. So yeah. then I went into, then I w- came back home, graduated from Duluth East High School, and then went into a college seminary. Okay. And was that? Uh... Immaculate Heart of Mary in Winona. Okay. So I was there for a short time. Uh, and then I quit the seminary. I actually quit the seminary three times. So I quit the seminary after Crozier, I quit the seminary after. I think I was just there for a year and a half in the college seminary. Then I quit and went on to campus with a desire to get married. You know, I was questioning celibacy was the big thing. And uh, and then after only one semester out, I went back into the seminary and then ended up graduating from Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary, St. Mary's University, St. Mary's College at the time. Okay. And then went off in the major seminary. Okay. And then I quit then again. <laughs> I was like, I was like two, two months away from my deacon ordination. Because deaconate ordination is when you vow celibacy. Yeah. And so that was the that was the train coming on the tracks towards me. That's the thing that was concerning me. So in my journey, and maybe Father Anthony can attest to this, is that priesthood ordination is a snap. It's a deaconate ordination. That's mm-hmm. the stressful one because that's when you vow celibacy. And so two months before I was to be ordained a deacon, I thought to myself, I am kidding myself. What in the world am I doing? And So I quit. <laughs> I quit the seminary. And then I got, that's when I... That's when I got into a formal stint in government, and I'd, I'd done a lot of volunteering and, you know, a little bit of work here and there in several different campaigns uh, and elections, but then I worked for the United States Senate when I quit um, a seminary for the last time. Okay. Yeah, so I was there for a couple of years in the Senate as a staffer to a okay. U.S. senator. Yeah, how was that experience? It was great. I mean, it's like I loved it. I, I pinched myself every day that I had such a great job. I loved it. And I remember, so the, my boss was um, Rod Grams, who's a U.S. senator from Minnesota. And I remember telling him when I was going to leave after a couple of years, I said, there's only one thing I believe in more than you. And I said, that's why I'm leaving the, your office. And that was, you know, my faith in the Catholic Church. And I kept, you know, feel, feeling the plugs. So when I was working for him... I got pretty involved with a, a local parish because I had all this education. I didn't want it to atrophy, you know, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to t- teach. So I started teaching classes, RCIA, Scripture classes, got involved as much as I could. And so I'd be at the office all day uh, uh, working for the Senate and be exhausted, then then leave and then go to the parish and do whatever I was going to do that evening and then get kind of like re-energized. And so that's when it that's when it occurred to me that, that was the first time I think I actually made the true decision to become a priest, even though I was that close. It's like yeah. I just kind of was, was like riding the wave of seminary until that time. And that's when I really felt, I think, for the first time, a call, a real true call, you know, because I had a great job. And it was right in the area that I wanted to be in. And uh, I loved it. And, and uh, to leave that uh, for w- what was a deeper calling was, was um, to me, a very distinct sense of call.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's something like profound about that too, like being called out of something good rather than like being in the dumps and be like,
1: well, w- what, nothing else. what's the worst that could happen? Right. You know? right yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I was struggling with that in regards to marriage because, you know, I mean, even though I had quit the seminary in college and I quit the seminary to, to go work for the Senate, you know, there was never, I never really, I, I dated here and there, but there was never any relationship that really caught on. And so it was very easy for me to be tempted to say, you know, I think I'm just going to go back in because I didn't find the right woman, you know. Yeah. And so I was really wrestling with that. In fact, even when I went back to the seminary after the third time I quit, I still was really wrestling with the fact, well, why didn't why didn't I give it a little bit more time? You know, it's like maybe I needed to find the right Maybe I didn't give it enough time. And so, uh, you know, I mean, you look back on it now and you say exactly what you're saying. It's like I, I didn't choose it because... Well, I wasn't finding the right girlfriend, you know, I chose it because of something deeper than that. Although I was still tempted to that idea, mm-hmm. I remember even talking to my dad. Well, it's like, Dad, I just, I think I made a mistake again by coming back in, you know. So it was something I was really wrestling with. So,
2: yeah, that's yeah. all part of it—the wrestling, the wrestling with
1: God. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to experience pain, go into the seminary. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, because I mean, for me, you know, discernment was very challenging. It's like. I always had a desire for marriage. And, and I wasn't it wasn't that I was desiring a family. I was desiring the companionship of marriage, of, of that mate. And so, I mean, there were times, I mean, almost all times I was in the seminary, I would change my mind four times a week as to what I wanted to do. So it was never an easy thing. That's why I said I never felt the true call until after I'd quit the seminary for two years to go and work a dream job. That's when I really felt the call. So that that, that pain of discernment was real, very real for me.
2: Oh, yeah, it's it's real. it's definitely the struggle is real, as we, you know, say ad nauseum. And that's that's really true, though. I mean, it's it's where you have to grapple with those very important questions. And then
1: you're young, you know, I mean, you're in your 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like you're 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 making these decisions. But that happens for people getting married, too. You know, it's like oh, yeah. and I think marriage is even more challenging because you have two people discerning instead of just one person mm-hmm. discerning. True. And so uh, yeah I mean to make these in a in a culture where commitment is kind of like a four letter word almost to make a commitment a lifelong commitment in your twenties is is truly counter cultural but it's it's a leap of faith, isn't it you know yeah I'm gonna decide this in my twenties and it's gonna be until I die in my eighties or nineties it's like it's tough yeah you know? so it's mm-hmm. a
2: bold thing it's it's really uh, bold no matter what
1: your vocation is yeah
2: oh yeah it really is yeah but like
0: uh just you like. Telling like that story though, I feel like that's that gives I think that's gives people more hope than just like, oh, when I was, you know, this age, I heard the call and I Mm -hmm. went in and it was fine. Like like that that's good. Right. Like that's not a bad thing. But I think like hearing someone who's like kind of struggled through like, is it this, is it not, is it this, is it not? Like that I don't know, it gives people who are more in that spot. Like right. Having, more you know,
1: having, yeah. having quit the seminary three times with this strong desire for marriage and having a mother that was totally opposed to my vocation. I remember some guy telling me one time, he says, he says, you'd make the best vocation director ever with all what you struggled through. And lo and behold, I became that guy, you know, for a while. And so it's like, and I, and I appreciate the fact that I could be that because I did struggle so much through seminary. On so many different facets, and so to be able to identify with somebody, it's kind of like the alcoholic that can help the alcoholic type mm-hmm, of thing. Totally, the guy that's going that uh, that went through a, a lot of crosses in my in my seminary uh, time to be able to help other guys going through the process. I still look back in my life my life I'm fifty two now as the seminary as being the most painful experience of my life. You know, for an extended period of time. You know, yeah, yeah. fraught with difficulty, right? Yeah, yeah, and but Father Anthony here just sailed right on through. No, <laughs> it wasn't a saint. Come on, no, I went through I... all of his evaluations.
2: This guy's a saint. He's he did... not a problem. <laughs> God bless you.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> oh yeah, they're still they're still suffering it and all. There really is. But yeah, Father Rich was my vocations director, and he did a great job with it. I got to just honor him right now um, in this podcast because there were about twenty five of us at, at one sure. point when I was in seminary, and he was handling a lot of it. Um, I wasn't we... the only one, but I was no. I was... But- deacon mike knuth helped him and out Father, father and bishop and schner bishop Schnur did a lot of good work but yeah it was great to have him there because also I, you could tell too he had a, a sense of what seminary is like much more um even with the difficulties too because we had guys that struggled and uh father rich was there to kind of support them to give them you know encouragement and to be alongside them in the midst of their struggle mm-hmm. i mean i remember several times you know um being called in to help, also as a seminarian with brother seminarians to to help out, and that support just uh, shows a lot of confidence, and it really helps guys through um, those periods. Yeah. So thank you for your work in well, that, Father Rich.
1: Thank you for being the easy seminarian. <laughs> <like>. <laughs>
2: I tried yeah. to not be a problem, you know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and I mean, even just thinking about like my own, you know, college experience, not in a seminary, like I couldn't imagine adding the other layers of actually being in the seminary at that point in right. my life. Just think about, well, one, the school, the school part, which isn't mm-hmm. which isn't easy. But then there's all the extra seminarian stuff. A lot. Plus yeah. the discern, discernment piece. And at that I mean, at that age, you know, kids are, you know, eighteen to 26 mm-hmm. to 30 it's just like people like who who am i like
1: right. what am i yeah. here for like asking all these big questions like seminary is very good for making uh good priests but also good husbands you know seminary so help people f- get formed and i remember when i was discerning college seminary i went down there for a visit and this is all struck me too is one of the guys that was in the seminary he said course i was in high school at this time he said being in the seminary is being like in college and six extracurricular activities at the same time and so it's like there was there's a ton that was always expected of you in seminary but you know i look back on my college seminary as being you know a very positive experience despite the the struggle of discernment it was a very positive experience for me
0: yeah and so, where did you go to major seminary?
1: <clears throat> well, I mean, I don't normally brag about this, and I don't care if it's on a podcast and who hears this, but I went to a, um, a seminary called uh, St. John's in Collegeville, and I was actually ended up being the last class of uh, diocesan seminarians to be ordained out of that seminary. Okay. It was not a good seminary. It was very. It was one of these seminaries that were were holding on to a, the real liberal agenda that maybe was still having its last gasp after the Second Vatican Council. And so, you know, I I suffered through that four years of seminary in a way that I didn't the previous four years because that four years, the first four years, was basically forming me to my identity of who I was and my love of the church. And then my four years of major seminary was basically challenging that and, like, Mm -hmm. being iconoclastic about everything that's Catholic. Mm -hmm. And so... It was a very, it was a very um, a tough challenge, and so I, I really can identify with guys that are maybe about 10, 12 years older than me, because a lot of those seminaries were very rampant back then. Most seminaries had a real liberal edge to them, and the seminary I was in was like the last one. It was like the dinosaur of the crazies, and uh, and and so that seminary actually helped make me a better priest, I think, and a more faithful to Mother Church because. You know they they would feed us a line of crap that was uh, in the classrooms, and I would have to do homework on my homework. You know I knew enough to know that this was not right, and some of the crazy stuff that were, things that were happening there was just like I mean I could write a book about, but uh, it it helped me become a better uh, priest and more faithful to Mother Church because you know I had to do homework on the homework and I had to fight for it. You know just like yeah. just like young kids that go to a Catholic college these days, they think it's well, it's really Catholic but they find out they have to fight for their faith in those places. Not all colleges like that, but most of them. And so that seminary experience for me was pretty similar to that. Yeah. And then you got ordained in what year? 98. I would have been ordained in 96, but I took those two years off Mm -hmm. to work for the U.S. Senate. And then, uh, so I ended up getting ordained in 98.
0: Okay. And then... You went to, it was Brainerd, right? That was Brainerd your, was my first assignment, and yep. your family. Yes, yeah, yeah. I
1: remember little Dan Roder running around. Yeah, yep. it was it was hard to miss me. You know, <clears> yeah, yeah. <with> my <laughs> so, red hair, so. Uh, yeah. What year? Uh, um, uh, what year were you born? Ninety-three. Ninety-three, and so I got there in ninety-eight. And your yeah. family must have been just moving we there. We probably moved there in 90, ninety-eight or ninety-nine. Yeah, I think you guys were pretty new when I was so, new. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, because <clears throat> Father Walsh was the... That, he was, the pastor. was, the, he was my, the pastor. He was my pastor, as a, the associate. He was a great experience to have him. He was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Really? That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then, um, yeah, so what, what were all your kind of assignments? So through, I was two through years, through years as an associate. Then I had two years as my first pastorate was right after that. So I had Floodwood, Cromwell, and Meadowlands, three small towns in the diocese, three parishes, two years there, and then five years at the uh, uh, St. Benedict's Parish here in Duluth, and then 11 years at St. John's here in Duluth, and now I am uh, four years at St. James in Duluth. And during that period of time, I also was vocation director, as we talked a little bit about. I worked quite a bit in the archives for a period of time, and then I was the, I don't know if I really have the title anymore, but I had the title of Bishop's Liaison for the Diocesan Newspaper, which is the Northern Cross. I helped I helped bring, bring the transformation from what we had, what was called the Outlook, to the Northern Cross. Bishop, bishop Schnur kind of had me chair the, the transformation. And so then I acted as the liaison between what was printed and what the bishop would want and what he didn't want. And so I worked with the editor a lot. And then for 20 years, I was the um, uh, auditor of the marriage tribunal. So those were my, those were my diocesan duties besides my um, parish work. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. Well, I mean, I've been a priest for a while. Forgot what it's like (laughs) not to be a priest.
0: Been a priest for so long. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, Yeah. What do you think is like, like through the years? I I mean, the world has changed, Mm -hmm. but the church has changed also. It has. Like, how do you think, just over the, I mean, the last, what, twenty five years? Like, how do, how have you seen the church change, and where do you think, uh, where do you like, how do you? Think, Where do you see it's
1: going? I think the, the the lack when we talk about church, I'm not going to talk about here the hierarchical church. Here. I'm talking about church in general. We as the body of Christ, right. And so I would say that in the it'll be it's been twenty four years now, the twenty four years I've been a priest that that the um, involvement in the sacraments have declined markedly. So I, I can think back of my first years and how many ma- marriages or weddings I would do. How many people were in my first communion classes and my confirmation classes, and see that now in parishes that are you know not too far off on the same size, that the uh, that the numbers are have tanked in all levels, and so we as a church now are a smaller um, uh, force in our culture because fewer people, at least in this part of the church in this part of the world, are involved in the sacraments. That's a big challenge. Yeah. The unchurched, I would say more and more there's the unchurched in the 24 years I've been a priest. that I've noticed a noticeable difference. So that's the biggest change I've seen in yeah. the church as the people
2: of God. As you were talking, Father Rich, I, I was thinking the same thing in 11 years as a priest for me. <clears throat> I've already seen that transformation as well. Mm-hmm. And it's it surprises me. I mean, I love weddings, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I have very few. Yeah. I, you I you can have my weddings if you want. All right, very good.
1: No, I'm just the, 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 cli-
2: the cliche is
1: that most priests would rather have ten funerals to one wedding, and and so uh, I maybe
2: fit in that cliche. Sorry, Dan. I know you're getting married every yeah, yeah. and I'm still the opposite. You know, I, <laughs> well, of course, I work in the marriage and family office, so it's right. like that. And I
1: worked in the tribunal, well, so I was
2: working yeah. with the, the annulment situation. So <laughs> the remedial part. I'm yeah. trying to do the preventative part. Yeah. yeah, I was doing the cleanup work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 well, both are needed. Right, both exactly. are needed. But I, I just, I saw that too, and I, I had like seven or six or seven weddings my first summer as a priest, and now I have, this this summer I have no weddings that I'm presiding over. Wow. And okay. I'm surprised at that, of course. new assignment, but uh, the last few years have been somewhat similar. Church, of, church weddings have become uh, more of the rare
1: exception. You know? Yeah,
2: but it's, it's also an indicator of that. Um, yeah, the the lack of involvement in the sacraments right. to, to draw near to Jesus there, um, who's there to really help us. I mean, it's, it's all that disposition. And for heaven's
1: sakes, we need the sacraments more than ever. I mean, open our eyes and see how messed up our country is. You know, just the United States. Oh, boy, we're messed up. And so we need, we need the sacraments. And so when fewer and fewer people are being involved in the sacraments, it becomes much more of an issue as far as we're at a disadvantage as church. But, you know, as I always say, it's like, I'd rather have a, a small church that is Catholic than a large one that is not, you know. Yeah. And so the fidelity to the church uh, for the members of my parish, that's what is most important to me. Do we want to grow? Absolutely we want to grow. But uh, I don't want a wishy-washy uh, parish and have a whole bunch of people doing things that are only doing it half-heartedly, you know. Yeah.
2: Yeah. How
1: that's do it. you
0: think we, as the body of Christ, as church, like, get more people
1: involved in the sacraments?
0: like w- w- like in the
1: culture that we're in right now it's a, it's a it's got to be a conversion of culture in, in the big picture but also conversion of self you know it's like we got we got to get out of our brain that we have to d- plug it like a commercial you know i mean there's a lot of religious orders that have been dying on the vine that do crazy type of um, you know promos to try and draw people in and uh, and and you know like our like just even our local i have no problem being somewhat Um, uh, controversial here, but our local monastery here, St. Scholastica, uh, Benedictine nuns, average age is like, I don't know, 79, 80. And uh, probably about 15 years ago now, they did a big promotional piece where they did commercials and so on and so forth. And they were saying, you know, I'm a Packers fan. I'm just like you. I, you know, I like to knit. And so I'm just like you. And so they kept on saying, I'm just like you in these commercials. And they were literally commercials on TV and it's like, who wants to go and do all these things and be just like me, but then give up a family? And, you know, so the vocation is not to be just like everybody else. The vocation is to be different, you know? And so I don't want to be just like everybody else because, you know, we look at culture, there's a lot of messed up things. And so there's got to be a personal conversion and not selling ourselves out to be, you know, with the culture. You know, people are going to be drawn to something that's countercultural. And uh, and we are certainly that. If we stay faithful to Catholicism, we are going to be countercultural. And so we can't draw people in through typical type of Western promotion commercial type of things, which I've seen all too ha- often happen, and they always end in failure. And so um, uh, I think staying, uh, you know, faithful to the truth of the t- teachings of the Church and being happy— so I remember Bishop Schner, uh, who's the bishop that ordained uh, Father Anthony, who I was the vocation director under, he said, nothing will draw people in more than um, a, a happy, holy priest and one who stands for the truth. So people are, a lot of young people, not a lot, but some young people are rebelling against the rebellion, you know? So it's like our whole culture is about rebellion, about, you know, institutions And a lot of people are actually, a lot of young people are are rebelling against the rebellion and they want to see something where they can put their faith in and something that they can know is true. And so truth and joy always draw people in. So if if we are, as Catholics, are, if we have, if we have, and this is one of the things I challenge my people with in my homilies regularly, it's like, if you're a faithful Catholic and you go to mass all the time and you're grumpy, there's something wrong. You know, even children are intuitively attracted to happy people. They're not... They're not in, they're not intuitively attracted to the grumpy person that comes into the classroom or the teacher that's grumpy. People are drawn to joy, and so if we are faithful Catholics, we are a people of joy. And if you if your overriding sense of your personalities, like dour and grumpy, then you're not living your faith, and people are not going to be drawn to that. So joy and truth.
0: Yeah, where do you think the the balance is between? Uh, like preaching the truth, and also not being a like, curmudgeon-y, like, <clears throat> yeah. damning right. person. So, because I, I think everyone, especially Catholics and non-Catholics, mm-hmm. like know someone that's just like who they've felt very you know judged or right. damned by.
1: So I, I can only so. speak. I can only speak to myself. And yeah. and I and I you know I mean I've been around a long time and and I at least I think a long time. And I and I you <laughs> know I, I hear from time to time. People say, "Well, I don't like going to such and such priest because I always feel worse when I leave. You know, like I'm yeah. a sinner." And so, from my standpoint, you know, I, you know, I mean, who am I to be a judge about my own preaching? But from what I gather, from what other people say, is that they appreciate what I do. And there's two things that I'm always trying to have in my homilies. Number one is brevity, and number two is humor. I always want to have some level of humor because the gospel is joy filled, right? the 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 word gospel means good news and so it's good news and so if if i'm going to preach i'm going to be challenging but you can be challenging and still bring humor and brevity in it you know and so the brevity is good because people's time their their attention span is like so short these days and so if i can walk away from a homily and know that i gave everybody one thing to bring with them when they leave that church maybe two then I've been a success. And, uh, and, you know, the humor, people love to laugh, and the gospel is joy-filled. And so uh, I always think that those two, I personally think that those two always have to be connected, brevity and humor with the message. And people are willing to accept the message. And if you preach the message from love, you know, it's like Pope John Paul II was like, You know, I mean, he was very demanding, you know, I mean, especially when he was preaching to young people at World Youth Days, it's like, this guy's demanding, but the people loved him. You know, the kids just loved him. They absolutely loved him because they knew that he loved them. If my people know that I love them, that's going to go a long ways, you know, and so to make sure that as priest, as preacher, uh, that I love my people and that they know it. And so the fact that that that's always got to be the underlying thing. I'm not here just to punch my time clock, just to get through another assignment, you know, and just to, to, to try and lay low and have an easy life as a priest. Uh, my job is to save their souls, and I can't save their souls unless I love them. And so if they know that I love them, then they're going to be responsive. And that's how John Paul II was so, so successful, especially with the youth.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, you could even, I guess, use that, I mean, you're the spiritual father, but as like... Uh, paternal father mm-hmm. of like, if the, if there's like a correction, you know, right. the, you can think of like a father correcting their child yeah. through love or through like just anger or
1: violence or something it's, like that. It's funny. You know? I, so I, you know, I mean, again, reputation from what I gather from other people is that I don't think I'm political in my homilies, but people think I am, even though I never like I never talk about candidates or anything like that. I never am partisan, but I always address the issues of the day. And, uh, um, I think I got a little bit of a reputation for that. And I, and part of that's a tough love, you know, it's like, I'm going to talk about transgender crap. I'm going to talk about, you know, the, uh, the abortion thing I'm going to talk about the the stupid you know pronouns him she hate it they or whatever I'm going to talk about these things and address these things from a Catholic standpoint and it's going to sound like tough love a lot of the time but I'm still going to bring humor into it and I'm going to bring brevity into it brevity to me is very important Father Dave Tushar who is was a a priest who just recently died he said brevity is a virtue and I've always kind of uh, followed along with that idea too and so the the tough love of of, of correction I can't tell you Dan, how many people have got up in my priesthood and left in the middle of my homilies? It has happened so many times, and I'm okay with that. You know, it's like, as it's happening, it's like, okay, this is a little awkward, you know, but, but I'm okay with that because I will not water down the truth of the church's teaching and what it stands for, especially when it comes to these cultural things that are like the flavor of the month you know and there are these flavor of the month cultural things but we have to fight these things we have to be a, a, a beacon of truth and and we can't be afraid to speak and for heaven's sakes if the priest doesn't speak about it, who's going to if my people don't hear me as a representative of the church talk about these tough issues where are they going to hear it from so i take it upon me as a as a this you know burning truth that's within side that i have to preach these things And all too often people think it's political, but I've never, I I don't ever talk about candidates. I talk about the issues. And if people get bent out of shape because they think, well, you're talking about, you know, a partisan thing. I didn't say the word. You said it. You know, you, you're automatically going to a partisan thing Mm. from what I'm saying. And so you think I'm being political because you, you know, who's right and who's wrong, you know? And so Mm -hmm. uh, people accuse me of that tough love on the, you know, the political side of things, but. I I, I said give me give me one example of a homily where I've talked about what candidate you should vote for or what party you should even vote for. I don't even say that. You know? I don't know. I don't know if that's even where you were going with that question. But no,
2: that, I had to say it. That works just fine. <clears throat> yeah.
0: That's good because I uh, I mean I th- I think that's that's something that um. Yeah that, yeah I guess I I don't know if I would say like yeah I, I've I've heard that like reputation yeah. but 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 if anything it's like yeah i know like i think when, when people hear like or know who you are and mm-hmm. know father rich they're like oh he's you know he speaks his mind right right you know like yep. that, that that's something that, that i think i've always like even what i remember from like when i was a kid was just like no if like father rich is like authentically father rich right right yeah <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> that's true I had, I had uh who was it it was a, oh yeah it was one of our seminarians who said uh I can't remember exactly what he said. I said I, had, I. Had, it was just recently. I just really sat down and had dinner with him. It was the first time I really talked to him, and and he said, "Yeah, you're one of the characters in the diocese." That's what he said to me. So I was like, "I wonder what that means." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but is, but, but, yeah. I have, but but I think that's kind of what you're at. I have I have no problem speaking my mind, but I'd like to think that my mind is in line with the church, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I hope to die a martyr. So maybe someday.
2: <laughs> That's the spirit. That's exactly. what I'm talking about. Now, yeah. who, who, if you don't mind my my uh, sort of butting in here a little bit, who would you ascribe to somebody who really helped form your mind, like a source of inspiration, like Peter Craft or somebody like yeah, that? Yeah, I'd
1: say it is a combination of Fulton Sheen and uh, John Paul II. Fulton Sheen, primarily, I would say, because when I was very young, I was listening to him a lot. Like it's like everything that was ever recorded of Fulton Sheen. I've got it in my brain, and and I, and his jokes too, right? Yeah, even his jokes, and even from a from a very uh, early age, I was listening to Fulton Sheen as a result of my my grandmother in particular. So he'd be the main one, and then as I got a little bit older and into seminary, it was John Paul II. So, yeah, and Fulton Sheen never, well, neither of those guys shied away from you know speaking what had to be said.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. St. John Paul II actually had. There's some like, pictures of him kind of reprimanding a priest who was like a oh, dissenter. You yeah. know, yeah. he was on the tarmac yeah. and yep. he's pointing yep. at him. He's yep. like, what that are you was doing? was in Mexico. And he was too, still a father. Like, he was oh, still absolutely. a father to that guy because he loved him, you right. know. And, and he wanted him closer, you know, in the end.
1: And people are drawn to that. People are drawn to the truth. You know, they are drawn to the truth. So
2: Nice. So. Well, thanks for, thanks for that. Fulton yeah. Sheen and St. John Paul II. Well, yeah. Got to read more of that myself.
0: Yeah, I want um, to I want to ask you a little bit about um, your uh, collection of relics. Sure, because sure. Because this is something that uh, well, well, one you have the
1: Vatican un- unveiled event that's yes. happening August nineteenth. It starts on the nineteenth, nineteenth, twentieth, and twenty first. And I don't really refer to them as relics. I because uh, people when they think of relics, they think of like saints' relics and stuff like that. I, I've got sure. some of those things, of mm-hmm. course. But my what I primarily um, focuses on people artifacts, things that okay. that popes have worn they've used uh, things directly connected to their person. It started with like documents and autographs, things that they signed, uh, and anything associated with St. Peter's Basilica, the Swiss Guard, anything revolving the person of the Pope and the trappings around the Holy Father is what I primarily collect.
0: Okay, so yeah, so how how did you start collecting? Like, how did that all begin? And then
1: yeah, can you tell us about the Vatican and yeah. the Vatican? so when when you're a, a collector, it's in your DNA or it's not. Either you're a collector or you're not. I'm a collector, and so as a young kid, I started collecting coins, and and then as I got a little bit older in high school, I started collecting autographs primarily because I was interested in politics, politicians, you know. So, uh, politicians autographs, what any celebrity really, but politicians primarily and past presidents, and uh, I kept doing that, and I re- would write to people and trying to get their autographs back in the day, and and. uh when it actually all started, when I quit the seminary, I was working for the Senate. When I was, you know, I was getting these like auction catalogs and so on and so forth from different, you know, autograph dealers. And uh, while I was in the Senate, working in the Senate, I uh, got a catalog of an auction that had three autographs of three different popes. It's the first time I'd ever seen a pope's autograph made available. It's like, like, what the heck? He's like, I mean, I I'd been in the seminary long enough to know, you know, the, you know what the significance of a pope. And I didn't know that they were ever out there. And so with the help of my sister, uh, I, ra- um, I borrowed some money from her to end up winning two of the three autographs. And so from there, I went, you know, totally to the Pope. So it's like, you know, I mean, my joke is it's like some people go postal. I went papal, you know, and so it's like <laughs> I went totally crazy. And I ended up selling my, my fairly extensive collection of celebrity autographs and I put all the money towards papal things and at that period of time is when the internet was really in its infancy and So um, with the internet in its infancy, I was Exposed to all sorts of opportunities to purchase things that today you would not be able to get without paying a lot of money Okay, so uh, because my interest coincided with the the birth of the internet and um, people trying to sell things from Europe in particular Italy uh, I was able to obtain things that I look back on now and I just, I just shake my head. It's like, I can't believe I got this thing for this amount of money, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, the, the collection's got its own website, papalartifacts.com, and the website itself has really put the collection on the map and it's very much helped the growth of the, of the collection. And then EWTN had two seasons of a show called The Papacy of Living History, just strictly on the collection, and uh, so that helped the exposure a lot. And then in 2004, you know, again, still somewhat in the infancy of the of the uh, Internet, um, uh, we had what we call the Vatican Comes to Duluth. And so that was up at St. Scholastica. I don't know, Brother Anthony, do you I remember? I was there. That? I worked at, there? Yeah. Okay, good. So that was, uh, the collection was unknown at that time, not much of the Internet pr- uh, presence, and it was a smaller collection. And even then, we grossed $122,000 raising money for the education of our seminarians. And so we were going to do that again in 2020 for the 100th anniversary of the birth of John Paul II. Uh, but then COVID came, and so that's what we're, the Vatican unveil has not come. And so now our goals are much bigger, and uh, we have the uh, you know the social you know media out there that can get people from all over the place that we didn't have in 04. And so we're expecting a big event, and so it's uh, this August, so it's a little bit over a month away from now. I'm. Uh, very nervous and working a lot uh, with that right now. The summer is not an easy summer for me because big plans. So com would be one way to check out that and even buy tickets. You can buy tickets that way. There's an evening event on Friday, which is like a wine and hors d'oeuvres type of thing where it's a much more exclusive, higher price tickets because of that. And then it'll be more of a private tour by me of the of the things that are there but we also have a somewhat of a celebrity that's going to be in town for it i've worked um uh, for about 12 years on the tv show pond stars i don't know if you're familiar with Mm -hmm. Pawn stars so it's kind of like a history channel cult classic and so i'm an advisor to their main expert and so um his name is markel patton most well known as the beard of knowledge he looks like a quaker he's got a big straw hat and always wears a red shirt and a big long beard and so he's going to be in town actually for the Friday evening event that's going to be open to the public, of, but at a higher price. And so uh, then we, after that, we have the Saturday night event at the Gitche Gammy Club, which is um, you a know, nicer uh, club here in Duluth, and that's going to be the sponsor's dinner. And so for that, that's a little bit bigger ticket price. Mm-hmm. That's $10,000 a table is what we're selling them at. Right now we're only selling, selling tables, but we'll be selling individual tickets as well, but uh, that's where most of the money's coming from. so the fundraising is going to be for Stella Mars Academy which is our school yep. as well as the Star of the North maternity home for, so 5050 which is a, um, a, a house a home here in Duluth and then up on the Iron Range for homeless mothers of young children. so it'll be a 5050 fundraiser. That's awesome. Yeah, so our goal is a half a million dollars. We're already at about $300,000 raised, you know, and so that's, but that's gross, you know, and so that's, it takes a lot of money to put this thing on too, you know, so we're, sure. yeah. we're putting $25,000 into security alone. And so it's not cheap to put this thing on. And we're in a period of time with the Roe versus Wade thing going on that, that uh, we're probably doing this at the worst possible time for security. So that's why we got to up the
2: security, so. Yeah, just to, to witness to the last event that was uh, back Whatever 10 years ago, maybe more than that, like that. 2000, 2004. Oh, yeah, so 18 years ago. 18 years ago, yeah, my timing is off, but it's it was so much fun and it was awesome to see the uh, the artifacts. I was really yeah. I I loved working that event, yeah. Um, and it was just a great spirit in the room, too. And when people came through to see it all, it was wonderful. I, I loved it. Yeah, I'm we, glad you're doing it. Yeah, we so. had thousands
1: of people in, in 04. We hope for tens of thousands this time,
0: yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. And uh, I was. I went to Rome probably. I mean, this was probably 2017 now. Mm-hmm. But just going through like the back end museum, yep. you know, you're looking at stuff, and at that point, it, like just going through that, I wish I could go through it again because right. it's, you it's, appreciate it's, it's it like sensory overload. Absolutely, and you're like, no. there's just so much stuff, and at some point, you're like, you can only look at so many, exactly. so many artifacts before yep. you're just like, it, is.
1: I, it looks yeah. the same, you know? Yep. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> uh, true. And so we're, I'm not doing the whole collection. We're only doing about 200 pieces. Okay, the collection is. Much bigger than that, and so we're picking the we're picking like 200 of the most significant pieces, so that sensory overload is avoided. Yeah, I, I hope. So yeah. you're right. You know, you go over to Rome, it's sensory overload all the time.
0: Yeah. Um. So I guess two two follow up questions. One, what is uh, maybe what's one artifact that you are the most like emotionally attached to, or that holds the most significance? Mm-hmm. And then you said that you sold a bunch of like celebrity autographs. What was like the most famous person autograph that you had?
1: Um. Well, I'll take the the second question first. I'd say the most famous person I had is that presidents. I had several presidents that okay. I uh, sold. I'd say that was probably it. Uh, as as far as the, the there's kind of, I mean, the way you ask that question about what's in the collection, the most <clears throat> thing I'm most emotionally connected to is not one of my favorite items, but most emotionally connected to is that, my mom, my Jewish mom, mm-hmm. who was able to invite, who I was able to bring to Rome and she met Pope John Paul II after a private mass, she, uh, <clears throat> after the private mass in the Pope's chapel, struck up a conversation with Cardinal, well, he was a bishop at the time, Bishop Jivetz, who became Cardinal Jivetz. And I had introduced uh, my mom to John Paul II as my Jewish mother. And John Paul II said, a, a Catholic priest with a Jewish mother, beautiful. That's what John Paul said. And then uh, afterwards, Jivitz came up to my mom and you know, said, are you really Jewish? Are you really Jewish? And then they struck up a conversation. Then my mom started writing him. <clears throat> and when she started writing him and he was writing back, I said, okay, I got to take advantage of this. And so I had a commemorative copy of Crossing the Threshold of Hope. That was Pope John Paul's big you know, big seller. And so I had, um, uh, I had her send it to him and ask him to get the pope to sign it. And so he sent it back. It came about six months later. It came back signed by John Paul II in the year 2000. So that's my most emotionally connected because my Jewish mom got this from the Pope's secretary to have my favorite Pope sign it. Yeah. But then I'd say most people ask, what's your favorite thing? And so I'll say very quickly. There's three. Really quick. Okay. Um, the chasuble at John Paul Second war for World Youth Day Denver, the close of World okay. Youth Day Denver, got which Mr. is like Schner. the World Youth Day. It seems the you know. World, yeah, yeah 1993. Yeah. In fact, yeah. in fact, at the end, when John Paul died, uh, Catholic um, Digest listed the top ten events of his papacy, and World Youth Day Denver was one of yeah. them. And so I've got so,
0: th- so much fruit from that yes, one event. Yeah, so.
1: and I and I got the chasuble from that mass. Wow. And so that, that's one. Of, and then I've also got um, uh, one of the volumes of the breviary of Saint John Vianney. Uh, another okay. one and then I've got the full set of seals that sealed the exterior door shut of the Sistine Chapel that was during the conclave that elected John Paul II so I've got the full set of seals so those three things are I always say are my three those are my all they're all tied for my favorite things in the collection but they're not emotionally connected like yeah. that thing from my, my, yeah. that my mom got yeah
0: that's that's cool and yeah that, 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 that's just a cool story too just seeing how like yeah your mom was able to like oh.
1: create these kind of connections. That yeah, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I was I was blessed to be able to get my mom into uh, yeah. to a uh, private mass with John Paul II. Now, when you were in seminary, what what years were you there?
2: Uh, in in Rome. Yeah. Oh uh, seven to eleven. So you didn't have John Paul. You no, had it was a, all you Benedict. Benedict. Yep. Okay. Yep. And the private mass thing was not not a uh, thing not a thing no. anymore. Prior to and it's still not a thing under Francis. No, exactly. Uh, but I was I was blessed to be able to serve um, a few masses with with Benedict the 16th. So that was cool. I mean, I yeah. got to do that, but not with my parents or anything like right, that. That's, right. That's that's a unique gift. I
1: got three private masses with John Paul II. The the first private mass I had with him was literally one week to the day after my mass of Thanksgiving in Rome with John Paul II. Then I had two others after that. So.
2: No yeah. one forgets
1: that stuff. No. You know? Paul, like, can you? No I met John Paul in person. I met and spoke to him seven different times. And so I look back on those things, like he's my favorite saint, my favorite Pope. How many people can say they've met their favorite saint? You know I mean? It's, I'm just, I feel blessed beyond belief with that. Yeah. And the older I get, the more those experiences loom large yeah. for me.
0: Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's cool, and it's it's cool to see that come into the collection. Also, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just be able to like all these all these kind of random things that probably a normal person doesn't think about, but like the seals that were on, yeah. On I mean, the uh, well, Sistine I mean, Chapel. Uh, so the
1: collection again. Go to papalartifacts.com if you want to see the collection. It's truly, it's it's like I you know I live it, and so it's like I'm accustomed to it. But when I bring people in to see just little parts of the collection, people cry. I mean, it's not uncommon for people to cry, men and women. It's like I've got these things that are so incredibly rare. It's like, how why are these even in Duluth, Minnesota? You know, it's like, let alone I realize that I'm just a custodian. You know, it's like these things are gonna survive past me. Some of these things I've some things I have are from like the eleven hundreds. It's like certainly they're gonna so I've got this responsibility for a brief period of time to take care of them. That's my responsibility and also my honor. And so what I do with these things during that brief time of my custodianship is going to be important. And so the idea of being able to evangelize with them and then to, to raise funds for worthy causes is also very important. So I view it as as a, par, a, a part of my vocation. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, well, yeah, th- that's awesome. And I mean, we're super thankful for, you know, you, you putting the, the effort towards that because... Yeah. Like well, you said it, it's a lot of work. so
1: yeah, so one of our brother priests, it was Father Michael Gary, I think he was quoting Thomas Aquinas or something. He said that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing it's like uh, if you're your well-ordered desires, God speaks through well-ordered desires. So it's like my desire and my passion for these things, God speaks through it. You know, so if mm-hmm. if you have a, if you have a well-ordered desire, God works through that, and God speaks through that. We all have different interests, right? And whatever our interest is, if it's a well-ordered, God can use that, and so mine is an obvious thing because I do Pope collections. I mean, who does that, you know? And so it's like, uh, so to use that obvious desire for the greater good is something that we're all called called to do. Yeah. Just like your technology, right? I mean, your desire and your love is technology, and so to use that in modern media and you know social media is God is using that desire mm-hmm. of yours. And for every person, it's that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's also what makes us, you know authentic and as you know the 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 body of Christ to to, to be the, the arms and feet so right um, yeah. yeah yeah great well yeah thank you so much no, absolutely. father absolutely. rich this for, has been enjoyable. for joining us and yeah we know you're you're super busy and uh, we're yeah looking forward to the the Vatican un- unveiled event yeah
1: so Va- vaticanunveiled.com. check it out that's how you get your tickets so
0: great well yeah thank you father rich and thanks father Anthony and uh thank you everyone for listening and uh, we hope we will catch you again next time